you're joining part two of our latest episode of Crypto Clarified. Previously, we tackled some of the recent headlines around crypto markets. Today, we'll be moving on to tackle key investor questions and educational topics, as well as debunking some of the popular misconceptions around cryptocurrencies in our Crypto Myth Buster session. For today's educational topic, we're going to be talking about staking. My name's Benjamin Dean. I'm director in WisdomTree's digital assets team, and I'm joined by my co-host, Camilla Russo, who's founder of Defiant Media, and our special guest, Drew Robinson, head of institutional sales, EMEA at Coinbase. Uh, today, we've been discussing the Luna UST incident last week. Try and put it into context in a broader market sell-off and think about opportunities in the near future. Cam, you mentioned the infinite machine in passing just before. I know in the last month you've had some interesting news there. I want to share it with listeners quickly. I think it's definitely one of the things that uh, is, is a noteworthy piece of information as well. Thank you for bringing it up. Um, yeah, one of the things to look forward to will be uh, watching the movie of the infinite machine come to the theaters in the next uh, two, two years or so. Um, and so, yeah, the, um, there will be a movie based on my book on the fitted machine. Um, it's a book on the history of Ethereum, kind of the people side of the story. So not the tech or trading side, but like how Vitalik uh, um, inspired a group of, uh, of hackers uh, and idealists to join them in building Ethereum, the challenges they face um, and so on. Uh, if listeners are interested in the history of Ethereum, they should pick up the Infinite Machine uh, as background because the topic we're going to talk about next is directly related to that history. Uh, since basically the beginning of the roadmap, and Cami, you could correct me if I'm wrong, the idea was for the Ethereum network to transition from a proof-of-work consensus me mechanism to a proof-of-stake consensus mechanism. And uh, listeners might be familiar with this idea of proof of work. It's how Bitcoin mine happening, mining happenings uh, run complex, or you solve complex math problems with uh, graphics cards. And if you manage to do that effectively with enough computing power, you're rewarded with Bitcoin. There's an alternate way in which to run a network, and that is proof of stake. Um, Drew. I know that your Coinbase already offers staking on, on uh, Ethereum on the Beacon chain. Um, you get, want to give any quick thoughts about proof of stake, how you folks think about it there? Is it a big deal when this transition happens? It has been delayed from June to maybe September. If you give us a quick background, then maybe Cami, I'll ask you to jump in and share some thoughts. But um, Drew, the floor is yours. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it, it's actually, you know, second to, uh, to Bitcoin, uh, the, the largest uh, asset and definitely the one that we have the most institutional interest. Like, again, like I'll, I'll preface that I come from the institutional side of the business. And so there has been a ton of demand and I would say interest probably picked up late last year about staking and we you know when, uh, when will the transition to, uh, to proof of stake consensus for Ethereum take place. I think that, you know, for institutional clients, uh, been the biggest, uh, I guess, biggest challenge that they face now is that, again, like, they, they can't just allocate LP or client if they're kind of a, a, B to, uh, a B to C play. They can't just have client capital locked up, you know, without any kind of end in sight in terms of when this transition 
uh, may occur. So I think that like what a lot of our clients are trying to figure out is what's the, how can they kind of time the market correctly so that they can start to stake and earn rewards kind of right at that uh, inflection point before the transition occurs where the rewards are likely to be highest. And so right now we just have a lot of people that are kind of waiting on the sidelines, uh, not so much because like Coinbase doesn't support it. We're actually uh, in the process of adding it to custody right now for our, uh, for our institutional clients that are uh, that are papered against our Coinbase Custody International entity out of Ireland, right? And so there's been some kind of one, the segments like where it might be VC or kind of lower term that are okay doing it, but most are kind of just waiting for this to, to go live to be able to offer to their end clients or their LPs. And then I think that, you know, what we're doing in the background of thinking about ways where we can perhaps uh, assist clients in the interim to have more liquidity while being able to earn some types of rewards or uh, staking, uh, staking revenue from participating in the, the Beacon Chain launch. Uh, but yeah, for, for, for me and from my perspective, I think that this is one of the massive potential catalysts for the back end or kind of H2 when we think about typical headwinds potentially easing in the market. This transition is a massive catalyst to kind of propel the market to the next leg higher. Thanks for that. Cami, you've cataloged the history of Ethereum. I flagged that this has been a long time coming. The verge has been delayed. I know investors are thinking about staking rewards and what it means for price and whatnot, but I, I sometimes get questions from folks and they ask like, why is this happening? Why is this technical change going to happen? Can you give people a little bit of background for like, what thinking is behind this, why such a big change might be made, and then maybe we can think about the consequences of the change when it happens. Sure. Um, so Ethereum uh, proof of stake, yeah, has been in the works uh, pretty much since the, the beginning of Ethereum, since it was launched in 2015. Um, maybe kind of the, the, the more kind of serious research uh, began in, in 2016. Uh, but it's been uh, a long time coming, and the the reason to go this uh, route and not proof of work is um, because it offers greater potentially decentralization, and uh, because it's more um, energy uh, efficient. It doesn't require uh, nearly as much energy as proof of work does. So proof of stake, uh, instead of having a, node operators put uh, energy uh, into securing the network um, and competing for uh, confirming transactions. Uh, validators instead are uh, putting uh, ETH deposits in, into the chain. Um, and, uh, and nodes that have uh, more ETH stakes have a greater chance of, uh, of confirming transactions. So you're putting um, capital instead of energy to secure the network. And what that means is that um, the, in theory, it would lower the barriers of entry to node operators because you don't need kind of all the heavy infrastructure that a proof of work mining operation needs. You just need to buy uh, ether um, and you know and, and the minimal hardware required to actually run uh, Ethereum nodes, but not kind of these like graphics cards and fans and like just like a lot of physical uh, equipment needed, which prices uh, a lot of people out. So um, that's kind of one aspect of it. It's supposed to make Ethereum more decentralized because it increases access 
for more people to be able to run uh, their own node. Um, then uh, the other aspect that again is, is kind of the the energy uh, efficiency. Um, you don't you're not putting you're not consuming energy to secure the network. You're uh, putting capital. So um, you know it's like if your proof of stake is supposed to consume like 99% less of the energy that a proof of work, if your proof of work does. Um, there's a misconception that proof of stake in itself would improve Ethereum scaling, um, but that's not the case. Proof of stake doesn't improve scaling, um, but the, the, the path to Ethereum uh, 2.0, which is has been rebranded to just like purely Ethereum, um, that's what is in, is supposed to include uh, increased scaling. So first step is proof of stake, um, and then next step is sharding. And sharding is kind of the piece that uh, uh, breaks kind of these uh, mini blockchains onto the main chain and, and allows for like faster um, uh, transaction times and, and, and execution. So that's kind of just like one point to, to clear up there. Indeed. Some folks don't realize that the Ethereum network evolves over time. So the Ethereum network we talk about now is totally different to the one from three years ago. And as you say, this is one piece of a continuing evolutionary process. It doesn't solve the scalability issue, as you pointed out, but it is an important step towards what's hoped to be a more centralized network. Uh, the reduced energy consumption is, is an interesting thing there. Um, certainly from some of the investors I speak to, they, they get concerned about that. Um, we'll see if it, are there any risks about the merge not going smoothly uh, that you've heard of? Um, I mean, of course there's, there's, there's risk, like this has never been done before. Um, a huge blockchain in production, live with billions of dollars staked and in volume and traded and and hundreds of applications and millions of users, all of that, you know, um, migrating uh, into into this new base layer, um, into the beacon chain. Um, it, it's a huge undertaking, and it's why you know these things are uh, take time um, and keep getting delayed. So um, right now, what's happening is uh, that. Uh, the merge is being tested on different um, test networks, um, and that's supposed to, or that's meant to give uh, more assurances that this is uh, going well. And I think you know Ethereum developers have opted for a, a more kind of conservative approach uh, to to shipping. You know, it's 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 very kind of consensus based, research based. Um, testing based, and that means you know timelines and deadlines uh, are are missed. Um, but I think it's it's probably worth it because um, there's just a lot at stake. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> exactly, it takes time. Uh, you know, I, I'm always a fan of the Bitcoin blockchain. The Bitcoin network does not evolve this much. Like its stability is is part of its its allure in a way you know it's not going to change terribly. So the Ethereum network is going through some big changes, and yeah, you don't want to rush through it. You don't want to put out network in, in production. You don't want to mess up uh, a process like that. But uh, keep an eye 
on that process and that roadmap, listeners, because around September, we think there might be a chance for that merge to happen. It is going to have implications on the investment case for Ethereum. It's going to have some implications on how the network works and uh, potentially could facilitate the kind of new use cases that might provide opportunities for applications and projects built on Ethereum in the coming years. Uh, we're coming up on time, but we do have a, a listener question. I'm going to direct towards Drew, but to that, of course, Cammy, if you want to have a stab at it as well, you're more than welcome. The question reads, how long do you believe the extreme volatility of the cryptocurrency market will carry on before it gets to the level where investment managers will be able to allocate it into their portfolios more easily? True. Yeah, I, I would say that like we've already reached that point, right? Kind of despite some of the volatility. I think that if you if you take a step back and zoom out, uh, the issue when we kind of had the, the last bull run, the barrier, the barrier for institutional adoption then was really the infrastructure, right? Like the, the custody solutions weren't there, uh, the execution venues weren't like up to snuff. There wasn't uh, the ability from a financing perspective, like as it really relates to bilateral lending. Uh, the futures market were, was a lot um, a lot less mature than it is now, right? So that's kind of the first hurdle that, that we had uh, the last time that we had this rally. Now kind of looking back to the rally of, of 2020, I, I would say that like, I have like a high conviction view that uh, crypto has started to penetrate the institutional uh, client segment and that we're already seeing this, this happen and all, almost like no matter how conservative the uh, institution is. Like, I think that most have come to the realization that it'll be part of their future. And that's regardless if you're an asset manager, such as you guys, Ben, or, you know, pension funds or, or sovereign wealth funds. And that, don't mean, that doesn't mean that they're all necessarily here today, uh, but they're, they're doing the work and either, you know, there's some type of direct allocation or indirect allocation uh, at the equity level or kind of at the uh, alternative investment manager level. Uh, I also think that like, you know, to answer that question, not all institutions are going to participate in the space or the way that they engage with the space is going to look kind of similar or, or one for one. So it might not just be direct ownership of, of some crypto asset. It, it could be, you know, that they're engaged in via stable coins. It could be that they're engaged in via smart contracts or, or NFTs even, or even just financing, right? Uh, you know, it came out the other day that, uh, that Coinbase and Goldman Sachs is a loan where, you know, we borrowed dollars and collateralized it using uh using Bitcoin. So I think there's many different ways that uh, financial institutions may have exposure to the crypto ecosystem and have that in their, uh, in their portfolios. Nice. Cami, I think I know what you're going to say, and you've already touched on it, perhaps, if I'm right. Are there any thoughts you'd like to share in response to the question around volatility? I, I, I totally agree uh, with Drew. Uh, I think kind of the time for investors to add crypto to their portfolios is here of course there's different kind of uh degrees and, and you know the uh, amounts um uh, regard depending on the amount of risk that each investor wants to take but um the infrastructure is here the the volume is here um and i think i think you know it's, it's crypto has been around for enough time uh, for us to say for certain that it's not going anywhere and it's it's an industry and sector that um, has a potential to keep keep growing. I mean, uh, what we're seeing is just more innovation uh, and more growth coming, uh, regardless of kind of this, uh, this short-term uh, volatility 
uh, cycles. So I think there's like there's ways to uh, to protect uh, against volatility. Um, there's you know more sophisticated uh, tools in the market now. Um, you know there's uh, there's options and uh, and even you know stable coins that uh, we've mentioned that can kind of help you take some of the more volatile assets off the table. Um, so I think there's there's different alternatives available that uh, there just uh, wasn't before. Um, and for me, it's 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 again just like looking at this um, as a very much a, a long term investment. Like, do you think uh, crypto uh, will continue to grow? Do you think it'll still be around? Uh, do you think it's um, a, a, a worthwhile, at least if not revolutionary, uh, innovation? Um, then, yeah, I think everyone should own uh, at least a little bit. Nice. We're coming right up on time. Indeed, when we chat with institutional investors, the suggestion is, look, if you don't think it's going away and you know there's trial and error and it's volatile, allocate 1% that you rebalance for things that are winning, you cut out the things that are losing and take a medium to long-term perspective. That way you manage your risk and you ride the volatility. You get the asymmetric upside from a space that has tons of opportunity. That's the end of the show. Cami, founder of Defiant Media, thank you for joining as always. It's a pleasure to see you. Yeah, thank you. This was great. And Drew, I hope to have you on again in a future show. Uh, I hope you enjoyed your time with us. No, I definitely did. Pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, we'd love to be back sometime in the future and chat again with both of you. Excellent. Well, I hope that uh, listeners have found today's podcast useful and informative. If you'd like to submit a question that you'd like us to tackle in a future episode, or you've got a myth that like we would like to want us to bust. Uh, to find out more information, also just email us at cryptoclarified at wisdomtree.com. Thank you again for listening to us today. We hope you all have a good day. 